0: I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5. Before we open the Word, uh, let me take us to the Lord in prayer. Father, we were reminded just a moment ago of the Whitworths and the Rittenhouses, both missionary partner families of ours who have had loss of loved ones with Diana Whitworth and Dave Rittenhouse. Father, we pray for those those families, for comfort for them. We have, as well, a couple of families in these last couple of weeks here that have lost dear ones, um, the Becker family, the loss of, of Ken. We're grateful, Father, that all of these folks are in your presence now. The families are hurting. I pray for comfort for the Beckers as they had Ken's memorial service yesterday, and Trish Plyler, whose mother passed away this past week. And So we ask that you would come alongside of these dear ones, comfort them, I also this morning lift up the Sheffalbines. Uh, they were to have moved this last Friday to, uh, uh, to Blue Springs and uh, having been members here for, I think, almost 50 years. And the snow delayed that and, and Barb ended up back in the hospital. And uh, Lord, we pray for healing for her and just uh, your grace upon them as they try to uh, deal with all the, the change in plans and figure out what comes next. We will miss them greatly. They've been such a dear part of our family all these years. Father, I'm sure there are so many other needs that are unmentioned this morning. We can't mention them all. But you know each one. We ask your grace upon us. We especially ask your grace upon us as we come to your word, for there is much here for us to learn. And we want to not be just learners, not just hearers, but we want to be doers. So, Father... um, May we have ears to hear, hearts that are ready to to put into practice what we learn from you. May we meet you here in your word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, I got into my car and uh, turned it on and I looked there on the dash and there was one of those little red lights you never want to see. And uh this time the little red light said service airbag. And I stared at it for a little bit and it raised all kinds of questions in my mind. First question was which airbag? There are quite a few in this car and I wanted to know, you know, it would make a difference uh whether it was my airbag or the one over uh you know on the other side of the car. Because nobody ever rides there. It's not that I don't value the people there. (laughs) Literally, literally nobody ever rides in my car. Second thing I wondered is, well, what's wrong with it? Is the airbag, you know, I'm just going to be driving down the road and just randomly the airbag, you know, and I will go flying off the ditch, into a ditch or something. Or is it just going to wait till I hit something and then it's just not going to work? And then how much in the world would this cost? I bet it's not cheap. And is it really worth doing, and is it necessary for my 16-year-old car to have an airbag? I mean, I grew up where, in the cars I grew up in, we didn't even have seatbelts, right? So, anyway, so I got to wondering as I thought about, was thinking about this message this morning, and I thought, you know, I wonder if we're when there's something that we're really depending upon to save our life, does it matter to you if it works or not? If there's something that you're really counting on to save your life, would you want to know if it doesn't work? So for example, you know this afternoon, it's you know, you decide that you're going to go rappelling. Do you want to know if the rope is going to hold you? It's in good shape. It's rated for someone of your size and weight and maybe three or four times more. If it were me, I'd I'd want a little overkill here. Or maybe you decided that wasn't, you know, extreme enough. Today, you decide, you know, I want to go skydiving. Do you want to know that you have a parachute that works? You know, not one that was bought from the second-hand store, you know. Somebody picked up on clearance over at Cousin Charlie's or something. <laughs> or... If you decided to go whitewater rafting, a little hard to do right now because probably everything's frozen, at least in Colorado where the good whitewater rafting is, that you had a life jacket that actually floats and will hold you up. I think we're usually kind of picky about that kind of stuff, right? And you don't really wait till you get on a road like this to ask the question: Are my brakes good? Well, if you're like me and you want to know that what you're counting on really works, then you want to stay tuned to the end of the message today because that really is something that Jesus deals with in the last of our passage this morning. We're here in Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, that famous sermon of Jesus where He is on the hillside, He has gathered His disciples there, and there is probably His inner circle of disciples and a larger outer circle of of people, maybe several hundred or maybe even up to a thousand or so people. We really don't know. That's one of those things, we don't know how many people were there, but the focus of the message, Jesus is aiming it at His disciples, those who identify as those who follow Him. And it applied to especially that inner core there that day, and it applies to us today, all of us who name the name of Christ. And in this message, Jesus is telling us what we are to be like, what we are to look like, how we are to live if we are followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not teach like the other rabbis, the other teachers of his day. Already we've seen in the verses before this, we're in Matthew chapter 5, we're picking up in verse 17. The Sermon on the Mount begins right at the beginning of this chapter. And then we saw in the first verses, Jesus gave us what we commonly call the Beatitudes. Blessed are you know, these people, blessed, blessed, blessed. And what we've discovered is what he says is, is radical stuff. Already, what he has said is very different, very shocking, very intriguing. And when we get to the end of the sermon, when we get to the chapter seven, we won't get there till May. But when you get to the last verse of chapter seven, it says, "When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for his, he was teaching them as one who had authority." and not like their scribes. Jesus' teachings were shocking. And not only was He saying amazing things, but He was speaking with an authority that the other rabbis and other teachers didn't do. They would tend to, when they were teach they would quote other rabbis and say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. Rabbi so-and-so says this. Rabbi so-and-so says this. I do that too. We do that because we're going, you know, I don't have any... I don't have any credibility to speak here. And Jesus, when he spoke, he spoke on his own authority. He often used this statement. He said, Verily or truly, I say to you. He doesn't say what some other rabbi says. He says, Here's the truth, folks. He does that because, of course, he is the God man, he has the authority to speak. Well, Jesus in his ministry, he often criticized the Jewish leaders because of their hypocrisy. And um, in turn, they accused Jesus of being a lawbreaker. They accused Jesus of being against the scriptures. Now, Jesus was very careful to keep the law, he was very careful to keep the commandments of the scripture. What Jesus didn't do was keep all the commandments that the religious leaders of the day had had added to it. They had their own interpretations of what this meant and what that meant. And they added things to it. By the hundreds, they added all these other commandments. And Jesus didn't didn't always bother to keep their other commandments. He kept the ones God gave. But that would lead them to accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker, you see. Well, for those reasons that Jesus speaks of his own authority, that is taught with authority, and that Jesus did not follow the traditions and the extra commandments of the Jewish leaders, and because of what Jesus is about to say in the next section that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks, where in the rest of this chapter, Jesus will go back to the Old Testament law and he will bring out something and say, you have heard it said, and then Jesus will go on to say, but I say to you, the the question at least could be raised, if not the accusation, Jesus, are you trying to do away with the law? Are you trying to do away with the Scriptures and set yourself up as the authority and abolish the law? And that brings us to where Jesus begins right here in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus begins by teaching some important truths about the scriptures. Some important truths about the Bible that he wants us to know. In so doing, Jesus is affirming the Scriptures. And the first thing He says as He affirms the Scriptures is He says, Hey, I'm not here to destroy the Scriptures. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Scriptures. He clearly says it. By the way, He doesn't say Scriptures. He says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the, you'll see there, He says, the law or the prophets. That is Jewish code back then for saying the scriptures, for saying the Bible. They would refer to it as sometimes just the law, which are technically just the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. But they would extend that term sometimes to mean all of the Old Testament. But most often when they would talk about all of the Old Testament, they would say the law and the prophets, and that would mean everything. Or sometimes they'd even get a little more specific, the law, the prophets, and the poets. But when Jesus says the law of the prophets, he's speaking of all of the Old Testament. Don't think that I have come to abolish it. So as he goes to set their mind at ease, I'm not against the Scriptures. Matter of fact, as he'll say in a minute, I've come to fulfill it. But notice that he said, he said, I have come. He makes another very, not bizarre, what's the word I'm looking for, shocking statement. Because when Jesus says, I have come... That's another thing that sets the bells off and the alarms off in Jewish ears that doesn't set our bells and whistles off. We just say Jesus came not to abolish the law, you know. But he says, no, don't think that I have come to abolish the law. When they hear that, what they think is, I have come. They are looking, you see, for a prophet who is coming. Moses said there will arise... Among you, one who is a prophet like me. And from that time on, they've been looking for this great prophet who will arise. They also have had more revelation was given of this one, this promised one who is coming. They're looking for the Messiah, the Messiah and the prophet, the one who is going to come. John the Baptist, when he introduced Jesus about a year before this, John the Baptist said, here's the one who is coming. John the Baptist has a question you get a few chapters later. It's been a little while, you see, since he introduced Jesus, and John's in prison, and he's wondering, if you're the Messiah, where's the kingdom? And he sends a message to Jesus, and he says, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for someone else? He wasn't doubting, he was just looking for assurance. See, they understood very well, Jesus right here is claiming to be the Messiah. I have come, and when you come, you come on a mission, and you come on a mission from somewhere. you got a purpose. And the implication is Jesus has come from God with a purpose. And the purpose, he says, is to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. By the way, that's another astounding claim, because who, what person can claim to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? It's an astounding claim that we tend to miss. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish it, but I have come to fulfill it. Which raises the question, when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it, what does He mean by that? It's one of those things that the theologians and scholars love to debate, and there's all kinds of of different ideas about what it is. and. What, There are a number of things that it can mean that are absolutely true. And usually when I come to the scripture and I find that there are several answers that can absolutely be true, I usually go for all of the above. And so let me just tell you some of the things that I think Jesus means when he says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. The first is that he is fulfilling the scriptures by obeying the law perfectly. Every command. Every teaching of the Scripture, Jesus is obeying fully and completely. That's why Peter writes of Jesus. He says, he committed no sin, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He is fulfilling the Scriptures, secondly, by teaching the true interpretation As I mentioned, the the Jewish leaders, the the scribes and the Pharisees, they had all these other things that they had, you know, their interpretations and all of their their extra commands and extra things that they had built out here. And Jesus comes and He teaches, here's what the Scriptures mean when it says this. Exactly what He's going to do in the next section, as, as we'll see in the next few weeks, where He says, you have heard it said, but let me tell you, what the intent of the Scripture is. So He corrects their teaching. A third thing that Jesus does in fulfilling the Scriptures, He fulfills the Scriptures by being the one whom the law and the prophets who the Scriptures point to. All through the Old Testament, you see, the, the law is filled with... Teachings about the coming one, the coming Messiah. The focus of all of the Old Testament scripture is Jesus. The law's religious rituals, the law's symbols, the law's sacrifices, the messianic prophecies from the prophets, as well as in all the Old Testament, the foreshadowings, the types, and the, all the pictures that are there, they all point to Jesus. Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' death and his resurrection, all of these were fulfillments of prophecies and pictures and foreshadowings and symbols that are all through the Old Testament. And those pictures and symbols and things will ultimately be finally consummated because there's some that, some that haven't been brought to fruition yet. But they will all be when Jesus comes back again and when he sets up his kingdom. Jesus is the one who brings into reality all of these things that are there in the scripture looking forward to him. So Jesus is the one whom the law points to. You know, if you had an acorn, and I've got them all around my, my lawn. I don't know if you've got oak trees, you've got billions of them too, which is probably why I have an, an earthly amount of squirrels, but that's another thing. If you take a uh, an acorn and set it down and take a big old hammer, and uh, you've got that there on your concrete patio, you take that hammer, smash it. Have you destroyed the acorn? Yeah, that would be a yes, okay? It's going to be in a million pieces, and it's just smashed there. But If you take another acorn, go out in the lawn and dig a little hole, drop it in there, cover it up and give it some water, and that acorn sprouts and grows into an oak tree. That acorn has fulfilled itself in becoming an oak tree. In the process, what's happened to the acorn? Pretty much it's been destroyed. It certainly has been changed. May I say, I think that's a little picture here for what Jesus is saying. I have not come to destroy the Law and the Prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. As Jesus is the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets, as He has come as the Promised One, the the One who has been the central focus of, of all the Scriptures, in the process, some things are going to change. As Jesus Messiah, as we just read earlier in the Communion time, as we read there in the, in the Scriptures, Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took the cup and He said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. you remember that? The new covenant which was prophesied back in the Old Testament back by the prophet Jeremiah. is one place, Jeremiah 31. He predicts this new covenant that God is going to make with people. And Jesus there that night, just before He was crucified, said, When I'm crucified... My blood is going to initiate, inaugurate the new covenant. There's a new covenant. By the way, we have the New Testament, the Old Testament. That's another word for the old covenant and the new covenant. See? Jesus, Messiah, has initiated the new covenant. He did not do away with the old covenant, but in the process of bringing, bringing in the new covenant, some things change, many things change. And some of the things that were necessary and were central in the Old Covenant are no longer needed, like all the signs that pointed towards Jesus, the sacrifices that pointed towards His sacrifice on the cross, the festivals that pointed towards His coming. You see, a lot of those things are not needed anymore. And so we come to the New Testament And we come to the church, we find that those things have disappeared. The apostles, Paul spoke of them like this in Colossians chapter 2. These things, speaking of festivals and Sabbath days and these things, he says these things were shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And there's no need, as Hebrews as well says, there's no need for us to have those shadows anymore because we have the real thing. We have Christ. And that's why, while the Old Testament has not been abolished, we don't come to the temple to worship today, actually yesterday on the Sabbath, to bring sacrifices to offer. And we don't keep those things because we have a new covenant under Jesus Messiah. So Jesus has fulfilled the Scriptures by... By obeying God's law perfectly, which he did. By teaching the true interpretation of the law, which he did. By being the one whom the law points to, which he is. There's a fourth way that Jesus fulfills the law, but I'm not going to cover that until just a little bit from now, a few moments from now. There's three more points I want to point out first about what Jesus does to affirm the Scriptures. We find it in the next verse. For truly I say, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Three more points Jesus makes about the law. The first is that Jesus affirms the perfection of the Scriptures. Jesus says when you look at the law, He says not an iota. That's the smallest of the Hebrew letters. And not a dot. Uh, Some of your translations of the King James would say a tittle. But what that means is this. It'd be like in the English, if you have a capital O, and then you have over here a capital U, the difference between a capital O and a capital U is that little line down at the bottom of the Q, right? Or if you have the letter F over here and, and a capital F, the difference between a capital F and a capital E is just a little line at the bottom. Okay, that's a tittle. That's, as it says here, a dot. And what Jesus says is when God gave the, the Scriptures, they were perfect. God sweats the details. Every I is dotted as it were. Every T is crossed. And He is affirming that the Word of God was perfect when God gave it. God with God details matter. And his word can be trusted. We don't have time to go further into that, but we call that the inerrancy of scripture. It's perfect. But Jesus goes on because he says not only not the iota and not the dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, God has given his word perfect. He also is superintending. He's watching over it to make sure that it, that it remains. It will not pass away. God will protect His Word. Even the smallest details, He says, until it's been accomplished. That means He protects it through time, over the ages. He also protects it. There have been plenty of people through history who have tried to wipe out God's Word. They have all failed. Why is that? Because God has said it can't happen. Jesus affirms the preservation of Scripture. Long story short, now what we have is a translation. What we have we can't we don't say the English Bible we have is perfect and without error, but we know is that what we have is a good translation and what we of the original languages and what we have in the original languages God has preserved. He was perfect in the original, he has preserved what we need to know till this day. And he affirms, lastly here, the perseverance the perseverance of scripture which is another word another way to say that it's infallible that in other words that what god has said will come about what god has written in his word will happen none of it will be lost none of it will go missing that's the point so jesus says god has spoken god has preserved his word and god's going to bring it about that's what jesus believes about the scripture There are plenty of people who will point at people like me and like this church who says we believe those things and they will say that's naive, that's ignorant, that is foolishness. We all know that the Bible is the Word of God. In the general, but not in the particulars. Yeah, right. The Bible contains God's Word, but not everything that's in here is God's Word. That's what they say. But if that's what's true, then this is useless. Throw it out and let's just go do something else. We're wasting our time. If we have a book that is supposed to be our guide for life and practice and the source of how we come to know who God is and how we get to heaven... And if it's not trustworthy, then we are wasting our time. But Jesus believed this is trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. That God has given His Word perfectly. He has preserved His Word and He'll bring it all about. And quite frankly, if it ever comes down in life to choosing to believe some high-minded intellectual or believe Jesus, guess which one I'm going to choose? And guess which one we should choose? Let's believe Jesus. We should not believe less about the Bible than Jesus believed. He said, this is God's word, take it to the bank. Okay. Therefore, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has said the Word of God, that the, the Scriptures are God's word, and he affirms their, their authority for us, and so he says now there is there is a response that you and I ought to have to the Word of God. He says that little word, verse 19, began with that word, therefore. Therefore, because God's Word is authoritative, it is trustworthy, therefore, listen up. He says there are folks who name the name of Christ, there are those who claim to be followers of Jesus, and they can have a couple of different reactions, a couple of different responses to God's Word. And he's saying, be careful which you choose. He's talking here about believers. You will notice he talks about both groups that are here. And he says that he talks about their future in heaven. So he's not talking about pagans and people out there. He's talking about people who generally say, who say, I believe in Christ. They are believers in Christ. And he says, some of these folks are going to have the response when they look at Scripture, they are going to be the relaxers. He says here, whoever relaxes... One of the least of these commandments. And that's a really good translation of that Greek word. Some of your Bible translations may use the word, whoever breaks one of these commandments. And that's not a bad translation, but the word can go to, to mean, be much more subtle than breaking a commandment, and to just relaxing it. What he's saying is this. You open up your Bible and you come along to a command in the Bible, and if you're a kid, it's the it's the command obey your parents. Don't like that one. Maybe it's for you if you come along, along the one you know, and says, don't gossip. Hmm. Stepped on people's toes. There's no laughing on that one. <laughs> or maybe it's the command to don't lie. And what we do is we take those and we say, well, I know it says don't do this, but you know. This isn't really a lie. I'm just not going to tell the truth. I mean Have you played that game? Let's be honest. <laughs> I'm not going to gossip. I'm just going to share a prayer request. About so and so. Yeah, we've been there, haven't we? And we go on and on. That's why Jesus, by the way, in the next section, everything he says, you've heard it said, and we got the command, and we make all our little excuses, and Jesus said, wait a minute. Let me tell you what that means. Wow. And he says, so you're that person. You look there and you say, well, and so you relax the commandment, and you just kind of make excuses, as we're so easy to do. We justify and rationalize, and we go ahead and we do what we know is wrong, or we ignore what we know is right. And then he says... We teach others to do the same. We teach them by our words or our actions. So somebody looks at you and they says, well, they're doing that. They're they're going there in the line where it says, you know, that children under 12 are free. And so, you know, they say, how old is your kid? And they're 12, (laughs) 11, I mean, 11 and a half, you know, and they're 13. And we do that for rebellion. And when we a parent does that, what do we teach the kid? Well, you know, there are times where we just relax the command. It's okay to fudge the truth just a little if it saves us a buck or 20 bucks. And see, we teach others to do the same by our disobedience. And Jesus says, whoever does that will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They're going to heaven. He's saying there's a cost to this. On the other side, he says, those are the relaxers. On the other side, there's the doers, those that hear the Word of God and they say, God says to do this. I don't like that, but God says to do that, so I'm going to do that. And then they they realize, you know, they go to their friend and they say, you know, I've really been doing this for years and I really didn't realize it's wrong. You know what? I need to start doing right. How about you and I... We hold each other accountable. We do this. You you teach others to do the same. Here's what God says. Let's live up to what God says. That person, he says, is called great in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. There's the relaxers and there's the doers. And the other thing to notice about this is there's rewards. He's saying, brothers and sisters in Christ, followers of Jesus, we need to be not the relaxers. We need to be the doers. And there is a reward if we're the doer, and there is a cost if we are the relaxer. There's a loss of rewards in heaven, or there is a gaining of rewards in heaven. That's a theme, by the way, all the way through the New Testament. And it's a theme, especially in this, in this Sermon on the Mount, we will find that Jesus several times will talk about the importance of laying up treasures in heaven. Rewards in heaven are real. And you recall, he says, do not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasures in heaven because they last forever. And they're good and they're real. And so one of the ways that we lay up treasures in heaven is we obey what God says. And we help encourage and influence others to do the same. You know, one thing I get from that is that every follower of Jesus is supposed to be a teacher. I know most of you sit out there and you say, I don't have the gift of teaching. I get that. I don't have a lot of other gifts. Teaching is one of mine. But the fact that I may not have the gift of mercy doesn't mean I'm not supposed to be merciful. And the fact that I may not have the gift of giving doesn't mean that I'm not supposed to give. And the fact that you may not have the gift of teaching doesn't mean that you aren't supposed to teach. Every one of us is a teacher. Every one of us is an influencer. What he doesn't say is how big your audience is supposed to be. Your audience is the audience you've got. Your kids, your spouse, your next door neighbor, your friends. Whoever it is that you have contact with and influence with, you're supposed to use that to try to teach God's Word. But you do that by also living God's Word. And Jesus says there's reward to that. That's our response to this. One last thing. Now I bring us back to our original question where we started. If you're trusting your life to something, do you want to know that it works? I think most of us really do. Most people in America, most people in America, almost everybody you know, If they believe that there's a heaven, they believe they get there by doing good or being good. And according to a survey that was done two years ago in 2020 by the Cultural Research Center, a majority of people who identify themselves as Christians in America, a majority of them believe that, quote, You can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. And in that majority of Christians who believe that, the number for evangelicals is 41% of evangelicals believe that. 41% of evangelicals who say we believe the Bible is God's word, it is trustworthy, it is authoritative, and those same people who will say that will say we can get to heaven by being good or doing good. And Jesus has one more statement here. And Jesus says, For I tell you, verse 20, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a shocking statement. If you were one of the people in that crowd, and listening to Jesus that day, in your mind, most every Jew in that day, in their mind, when they looked at the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought of them as the most righteous, the most holy people that could ever be. If anybody is righteous and holy, it's a scribe or a Pharisee. Matter of fact, there was a saying, a popular saying in the time of Christ that went like this. If only two people can get into heaven, one of them will be a scribe and one of them will be a Pharisee. Because the pool of the most righteous people is down to that group of folks and one of each will probably get in. That's what they thought. So when they hear this, what they think in their mind is, whoa, if they can't get in, I can't get in. Is that really what Jesus is saying? If he's saying you can't get to heaven by... Your own goodness? Yeah. Matter of fact, you get a little farther down, we get down to the end of chapter five, verse forty. Jesus said this. He said, You therefore, how 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 good do you have to be to get to heaven? Verse forty. You therefore be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. There's the standard. Just in case there was any doubt. Now, who can get to heaven? Because Jesus said the scribes and Pharisees aren't good enough. Because the standard is perfection. Who can do that? None of us. It says it other places in the Bible. Romans chapter 3 verse 20, for example, says, By works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, when you learn God's word, what you discover is, I'm a sinner. What we discover is, the standard's perfection, and I don't measure up. So what do we do? Well, there's good news. The good news is we go back to the very first of the sermon, the first line of Jesus' sermon. It was the first beatitude. Do you remember what the first beatitude was? Blessed are, you'll find it back up, just look up to verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what's the blessing that goes with it? For theirs is the very thing we can't get by being good. Isn't that something? What a coincidence. Wait, Jesus has a plan here. He's preaching a sermon. (laughs) The very thing he opens with Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is in the kingdom of heaven. Now he says here, by the way, if your righteousness isn't better than the scribes and Pharisees, if it isn't perfect, you ain't getting in. So, how do you get in? What what was poor in spirit mean? Do you remember? poor in spirit is this it's owning spiritual bankruptcy it's saying God I got nothing I am a sinner and I got nothing nothing I can bring to you that will overcome my sin I got a debt bigger than I can pay and when somebody comes to God like that where they what they do is they meet Jesus and here's the good news Jesus, I said there's a fourth way Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus fulfills the law for us. What we couldn't do, Jesus did. That's what the whole, the whole service of communion is picturing. What you couldn't do, you couldn't pay for your sin, but Jesus paid for it on the cross. He fulfilled the demand of the law. And He paid for the sin, the debt that you owed. Jesus fulfilled the law's demand. The wages of sin is death, eternal death, hell. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus paid the debt of sin, and we get life, eternal life. Wow! Jesus. The second way that Jesus fulfills the law in us is now that those who have placed their faith in Jesus and are saved, Jesus then changes us from the inside out. He lives out His righteousness then through us so that we who are lawbreakers become law keepers. God looks upon us and He sees the righteousness of Christ. That is how we are saved. And then God begins to work in us and change us through the Spirit of Christ. He transforms us. And so, again, Romans 8 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not according to the flesh. It's not by, because of our efforts. It's because of the Spirit of God changing us and working in us and with us. Isn't that good news? Now, all of that, it's a lot of theology, a lot of practical stuff for all of us as well. Just one big question this morning. And that is, what have you been trusting to get to heaven? It frightens me when I read that 41% of people who go to churches where they say they believe the Bible is the Word of God Forty-one percent of people who name themselves evangelical Christians think that somehow they're going to get to heaven or people get to heaven by being good. The Bible could not be more clear. Nobody can be good enough. There's only one way to heaven, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Because Jesus is the only one who could pay the debt. How do we make it ours? I go back to what the verse I quoted earlier during communion. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. As your pastor, I don't ever want anybody to be foggy about how we get to heaven. And I don't want anybody to ever come here and sit in the pew for the first time today or for the 5,000th time And somehow walk out these doors and think I can get there by being good. We only get there by the grace of God through Jesus. Place your faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this good news. What we can't do, You did through Jesus. All we have to do, all we can do is receive it by trusting, by believing in Him. And then we have a future in heaven. We have a righteousness that is greater than anything that anybody, even the most pious person, can try to gin up for themselves. We have the righteousness of Christ on us. That's your gift. Thank you. And then you begin to change us from the inside out and how we need that. So Father, may you this morning, if there's even one person here, that has never understood that before or has been resistant to that before, in this moment they might say to You, Yes, Lord, I get it. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I'm trusting Jesus. And then, Father, may every one of us, may You, by Your grace, make us more like Jesus every single day from now till the day when we see You face to face. This we pray in His name. Amen.